0: It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma.
1: Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley. And today I have Jeff Krim with me. Jeff,
0: welcome. Hi, it's great to be here.
1: So I am looking forward to our conversation. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Well, um, you've already given them my name. I'm Jeff Krim, I'm a Lutheran minister living in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, with my wife, my son, and our cat. I serve both as a parish pastor in a a small Lutheran church that's been here for a little over 100 years, and then I serve as a staff chaplain in in one of our local hospitals, in our local Catholic hospital, actually, and uh, previously have served as a chaplain in hospice and uh, and in other healthcare settings.
1: All right. So, uh, tell me. I'm curious. I've always, um, I've always wondered about hospice chaplaincy. What is, what is it about that work that is, um, that is impactful for you?
0: You know, the thing that I will always remember about my time working with hospice is that it's the one place in medicine where we really sit down with a patient and we say, what's important to you, you know, in, in the hospital setting, often the, the medicine proceeds with the doctor defining what get well looks like. Mm -hmm. And in hospice where that's been taken off the table, the patient is terminal Um, but we're worrying about quality of life. We sit down with them and we say, what does quality of life mean to you? What is the most important thing to you? And I will always remember, we had this one lady who said, I really want to be able to sit out on my front porch and drink my cup of coffee every morning and do my crossword puzzle. Mm -hmm. And so that is what we focused on. What? Whatever was wrong with her medically between the nurses, the physical therapist, the occupational therapist, myself, the social worker, we made sure that as long as she possibly could, she was able to get out to that front porch every morning and have a cup of coffee and work her crossword puzzle.
1: Mm. Is it just um, you're just putting the the patient in the driver's seat then?
0: Really, yes. You know, in, in hospice. The patient is the one who defines what they want and what they need. And then the uh, the care team comes in around them to support them in that.
1: Yeah. Well, I had a friend who was a hospice chaplain. She said it's just to be invited into the holiest moments of somebody's life. And I thought that was a good descriptor. But um, for me, I've just always wondered about that work and very much admire people who do it.
0: Yeah, and your friend is absolutely right, because when you are letting people define and tell you what's important to them, you end up being involved in in those important things. And so, you know, the, the example I gave of the lady sitting out on the front porch drinking coffee, that seems very mundane, except that when you would sit out there with her while she had her coffee, she would tell you all the stories of her life, of raising her children, of when she went to work. And it was just a beautiful time of, of sharing with her, you know, and, um, and, you know, moving toward the end of her life. But one of the things that you realize as a, as a hospice staff member is that those patients may be a little more acutely moving toward the end of their lives, but moving toward the end of life is something that we're all doing
1: hmm. Yeah. So they're just I mean, it's way more definable than for the rest of us. Right. hmm. Yeah. Well, that's powerful work. So can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and family of origin? Were you raised in Tennessee?
0: I was not raised in Tennessee. I was born on the island of Guam. My father, yes, my father was, uh, in the air force. And, uh, so I was born on, on the Island of Guam, which if you've ever been to it or ever seen it, um, it is, uh, it's tiny. Uh, when you, when you go there, you very much have the idea that the airplane is going to accidentally skid off the other end of the Island when it lands. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Um, and then I, I we moved from there to to Plattsburgh, New York, um, and then after that we moved to Hawaii, and that's where I started school and uh, and spent my early childhood. We moved to to Chattanooga, Tennessee, when I was about ten years old.
1: Okay, all right, and you've been there been there since.
0: Well, off and on, I I left to go to college, uh, came back to finish college, left to go to seminary, um, pastored churches in other parts of the country for a little while, and then uh, came back in 2008, 2009 uh, to, to become a hospital chaplain here.
1: Okay. So when did you decide or feel the call to be a minister?
0: Ooh. To be a minister generally, I, I don't even really remember. I do have this one memory of uh being at a church youth conference and uh the bishop, the, the Lutheran bishop of the Southeastern Synod at the time, um talking to us about the fact that uh there was a what he perceived a vocation crisis, that we didn't have uh, have as many people entering ministry as we had spots for ministers, and that was going to be a real crisis in the future. He, by the way, he turned out to not be right about that, but I do remember that and remember thinking, well, maybe he's talking to me Mm-hmm. But but what I the the experience I really remember is that when I was in high school I worked um one summer at the hospital where I'm now a chaplain and I'm and it, it is a Catholic hospital um and at the time we had uh, we had quite a few more sisters working in the hospital than we do now and one of them Sister Betty was was uh, the hospital chaplain. And I found the work that she did absolutely fascinating. Um, I, I probably annoyed her by, by following her around and watching what she did and asked her, asking her questions. And it was, it was really seeing her be the hospital chaplain and watching her interact with patients with, with you know, no end game in mind nurses mm. interacted with patients and nurses are very compassionate and they are absolutely wonderful people um and and we couldn't heal people without them but when a nurse enters the room a nurse enters the room to do a procedure or to perform an act you know when a a doctor enters the room um the doctor is there to to practice medicine with an end goal in mind and when when sister betty would go into a patient's room she was just there to be with them in what was going on with them. And that absolutely fascinated me. Um, and, and like I said, I now work in that same hospital. I have met uh, Sister Betty, who is now retired as an adult, and uh, and she has no memory of me, which is hmm. is probably good for both of us.
1: Well, maybe you didn't <laughs> annoy her as much as you thought.
0: <laughs> perhaps, perhaps.
1: Well, um, you know, I I have mentioned this before on this podcast, but I am uh, fascinated with the Jesuits and the Jesuits have this understanding of God. That's a witness. In fact, there's a book called, can I get a witness? And, you know, it's about that, that, feeling of just walking with somebody without an agenda. And, and the Jesuits concept of God is that God walks with us through the valleys over the mountains and, and he, he he's with us all the time. And I, I think that's a beautiful reflection and, and perhaps what you're saying about chaplaincy.
0: It it absolutely is. It absolutely is. You know, I, I have sort of a, a love hate relationship with Jesuits because they are, they are sort of devoted to Thomas Aquinas as a philosopher. And I I find Aquinas to be a a bit, a bit heavy, but absolutely that concept they have of being with people. And in particular, I'm, I'm privileged to have known um, uh, Father Daniel Berrigan, who was a Jesuit priest and Mm -hmm. who, who brought that aspect of Jesuit spirituality into social activism and, and being with people in, in, in activist communities where, where clergy had not really previously been present and, and then to be so with people as to be with them when they went to jail for, mm-hmm. for social action and for, for seeking justice. Um, and yeah, um, Father Berrigan, I didn't know him exceedingly well um, but, uh, but I was privileged to know him when he was alive and it was one of the more influential figures on me, uh, when I was, was really discerning a call to ministry to begin with.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's really cool to see how God brings people into our path that uh, the Holy Spirit speaks to them and, and speaks to you um, about vocation and about, you know, who you are. And I just I'm always amazed when I look back on uh, my ministry career and the people that uh, God put in my path that really uh, made a big impact and a big influence. They've been real gifts to me. So, uh, part of your, an unfortunate part of your childhood story involves, uh, sexual abuse by your teacher. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Sure. Or at least I'll try. Okay. Um, when, when, uh, around this, well, I met sister Betty in, in high school. So, so before that, when I was in junior high, um, uh, around 12 years old. Um, so just a couple years after we had moved to, to the continental United States, um, I started middle school and, uh, and for the first time was, was taking a gym class and, uh, um, you know, I don't know really exactly how to pinpoint where it began. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, since your listeners are listeners and can't see me, I am not exactly the most athletic person that you could meet. Okay. Um, and I never have been, you know, some, so when they hear military brat, they may think somebody who, who grew up doing calisthenics and being, you know, as, as many of my peers did and and being sent to boxing lessons, that, that was not me, um, and uh, and so I was not all that great in gym class, and uh, and the uh, the gym teacher uh, took an interest in in helping me get better,
2: mm-hmm. or at
0: least that's what it appeared to be. Um, you know, I was involved in a number of of nerdy after school activities, and so he would have me come by in between the end of school and the beginning of those, or maybe after those were over. And he, under the pretext of, you know, helping me learn to shoot a basket better, um, and a fairly inappropriate relationship began to develop. And mm. even even today, it's, it's difficult for me to say that I was sexually abused because, you know, the way we talk to children about that is, um, you know, because we're talking to children, we tell them things like, if somebody touches you in a, on a spot that a bathing suit would cover or something like that. And that never really actually happened, mm-hmm. you know, knowing what I know now as an adult and as, as a person who's received training in spotting abuse, and as a person who's received training in counseling um, I can take a step back and look at that relationship and go, Oh, yeah, he didn't do that, but he was on his way to doing that. He was
1: he right, was, right. You know,
0: the, the technical term that your listeners might know is grooming. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I think he probably got to a place with me where he realized that um I would not be safe for him to victimize in that right. way. That, um, but um, but he was definitely moving in that direction. But the thing is, like I said, I never really understood that it was abuse. Having grown up in the military, um, you know, things like communal showers with adults were not unknown to me. You know, when particularly in Hawaii where people barely wear clothes anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know you know, we, I'd go to the pool and, you know, you would, you would be required to shower before you went to the, into the pool. And, and, you know, unless you wanted chlorine all over your skin, you showered when you got out of the pool and you showered with whoever was there. And it, so it never occurred to me that after school, the, the gym teacher taking a shower with me was, was not a kosher thing. right? Um, that, but I, so, so it took, forever for me to realize that. Um, But now, like I said, as an adult, looking back, um, if I saw an adult behaving the way that he was behaving right out in the open, very often with me and with other boys, I would have been like, that's, that's something that somebody needs to take a look at. I didn't understand myself as having been abused until I was an adult. And uh, your listeners will probably remember the the national news story about Jerry Sandusky Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. having abused children in a youth sports program. Well, a couple of guys that I went to school with came forward and told their stories about this same gym teacher. Oh, okay. Um, they, they, they went on a local talk radio show. Um, a talk radio show that's normally devoted to covering sports. Um, they gave up their their entire uh, hour one night for their host to interview these two guys, um, both of whom were, or one of whom at least was, was an accomplished uh, college athlete in spite of what had happened to him as a child. Um, to interview these two guys about what had happened. And I realized that that up to a point, um, their story was my story. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, I hope I'm not getting getting ahead of your questions here. No,
1: no, I, I appreciate your um, um, candidness. Um, one of the things that I think you're highlighting, which is really important to know, is that abuse is abuse. Trauma is trauma. And sometimes we look at it as levels, like you had more trauma than I did or your trauma was was more severe than mine was. And I think um, in in trauma as in abuse, we can't say well gee, jeff that wasn't abuse because you know he didn't have sex with you you know i think we need to you're highlighting an important point in that we need to uh equalize that a little bit rather than trying to measure it on some kind of linear linear severity schedule
0: right uh, absolutely and i have to say that um after that radio program i reached out to those two guys and uh and at, at no point, at no point did they say, well, you know, you didn't get it as bad as we did. I mean, they they understood that the the intersection of our stories and that we had all experienced the same thing. Um, interestingly, around the same time, when, when I was in the eighth grade, so this would have been my third year of uh, of middle school, my third year with this particular gym teacher, Um, I spent the better part of my summer vacation in a, in an adolescent psychiatric facility, Mm -hmm. um, ostensibly for depression, but, but I don't actually remember them telling me what, if anything, my diagnosis ever was. It was, you know, as an eighth grader, I understood it as this place that I got stuck for the summer and was very unhappy about it, Right. but, but after, um, after I heard the radio program and talked to the guys that had been on the program, I looked up my, uh, my psychologist from back then, and he was still in town and still practicing. And so I called him up and said, you know, can, can I get an appointment? And he said, yeah, sure. And so I went in and saw him and, uh, uh, he had, he had found my old file. He still had it and he had gone through it. And he said, and I, so I told him what had happened and, and the realizations I was coming to. And he said, you know, I have to tell you, you make a whole lot more sense now.
2: Oh, he, said okay. that, he said,
0: he said, looking back through your file, he said, the psychiatrist and I were convinced that you were an abuse victim. And we would ask you about it. And you would say, no. Right. And we we would, he said. I have notes where we were talking, and we would say, "Well, he doesn't appear to be lying. He's a really smart guy, so he can't be confused about it." So we we just we were conv- we were convinced that you were an abuse victim. You presented it as an abuse victim, but you very credibly denied being an abuse victim right. the entire time we had you. He said that's <laughs> probably part of why you were in there as long as you were.
1: Yeah. No kidding. So do you think it was just you not remembering or was it just a lack of knowledge on saying this was actually abuse?
0: I think it it was, it was definitely not me not remembering. It was a lack of knowledge on my part um, about what abuse was. You know, I was, I was a smart kid. And, and when it came to things that came from books Um, I knew a lot of stuff, but I really didn't understand what abuse was and the, the, and the tools that we use to teach children, because we have to speak to children in ways that children understand, um, were, um were things like, you know, if somebody touches you in a particular way or, um, or, you know, we don't tell kids if, if somebody's behaving around you in a way that just feels really creepy, (laughs) Uh (laughs) you know? Um, so I didn't really understand, um, what was and wasn't abusive.
1: Um, Right. And like you say, he was uh, in the grooming process. mm -hmm. And um, how do you think that that happens, how abusers weave themselves into the lives of children?
0: Well, you know, I'm not an expert on that, but I mean, I think what we see in case after case after case is that that. abusers find places that give them access to children and then they excel at those roles mm-hmm. you know after after this all came to light when these two classmates of mine went on the radio the uh, the local newspaper did an investigative report on on the whole thing and they got his his the teacher's performance evaluations and reviews for from several years And, and, you know, they were all glowing. He was a really good gym teacher and a really good baseball and football coach. He Mm -hmm. he got the results in those roles that administrators wanted him to get. And I think as a result, didn't face a whole lot of extra scrutiny.
2: Mm. Mm.
1: Interesting. Um. So you mentioned, um, that you spent time in a psych facility as a teenager, but you've also spent time, um, as an adult, right?
0: Uh, I've not spent time as an adult, as a patient, as an adult, I worked in a community mental health center when I was in seminary, I worked as a case manager in the, uh, the outpatient community support program at a, at a mental health center in Indiana.
1: What is it like sitting on the other side of the desk, as it were, uh, watching patients come through and, and um, helping them? What, how did that change your perspective or, or um, grow your knowledge about the mental health system?
0: Well, for one thing, it gave me a very um, clear view of the difference between what's available in terms of mental health when you're, when you have things like money and insurance to pay for it. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can go to a private psychiatric hospital, um, versus when you're a, a, I worked with adults, um, when you're an adult who's who's struggled for their entire lives with something like schizophrenia, um, and you're, you're chronically unemployed or underemployed. And so you, you have to make do with what's available, um, through charity care and through Medicaid, you know, in, in, in reality, there's on a number of levels, there's very little comparison between the two. When I was in a a psych hospital, I, uh, I slept in a very nice bedroom every night with, with a very nice bed and we got three very good meals in the cafeteria. And of course we were teenagers. We complained about them anyway. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> c- compared to that and, and um, either public mental health or even private not-for-profit mental health, where, where the payer source tends to be, um, medicaid and whatever fundraising we can do um there's just a world of difference
1: yeah yeah Um, there there really is a a privilege um that is found in private facilities i attended uh uh, nami meetings for quite a while the national alliance mm -hmm. um for mental wait, nope wrong national association of mental illness. I don't, I don't know. I don't have that right, but um, I would attended NAMI groups and to hear people talking about uh, hospitals that are privately funded or that are covered by insurance or versus, versus general psych facilities, the, like you said, the difference is really marked. Yeah. Yeah. So what have you learned uh, through life that you think could help other abuse survivors?
0: I think the thing that was most surprising to me was that it actually felt good to talk to other survivors and to find out that um whatever the differences in actual events were that that at a core level our stories were the same
2: Mm.
0: um i i cognitively intuitively i would not have expected that i would have thought that talking to other people would be would be re-traumatizing or um or difficult, or that 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 like we talked about a minute ago, there would be this temptation to put things on a scale, and that, that I would find out that that I wasn't really enough of, a, I hadn't survived enough to justify myself being there, or something like that. Right. Um, I, I really found it surprising that it was actually very helpful um, in in coming to terms with my own past and my own history. Um, to talk to, to to tell my story to others and to hear other people's stories.
1: Yeah, well, you know the thing about abuse is that uh, so often, and especially with children, there's there's shame involved, and so you bury it, and and it becomes really isolating, right? And so, to find other people that have commonalities with you, similarities that have um, empathy for where you're at, is is to Regain some of your own power.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. I, I, uh, I find that also that, um, just like hearing your story and hearing other people's story, I'm encouraged because I go, well, they, they lived through that. I can keep going. Um, and I, I just think that's part of the power of this podcast is being able to share story with one another. So, um, I don't want to, I don't want to end our time without talking about you, uh, living with cancer right now. Tell me a little bit about that.
0: Yeah. Um, well, about four years ago, I was uh, I was um, going to a fitness camp. Actually, one of the things that um, that I was able to rediscover as an adult is that uh, that that physical things were fun. Um, mm-hmm. and so I had started lifting weights and, and was going to this, this wonderful event that used to be held every year. It hasn't been held for several years now, but called camp nerd fitness.
2: And, <laughs> uh, and
0: yeah, it, 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 nerd fitness is a wonderful organization that, that, well, it's a company, it's a wonderful company that makes fitness culture available to people that, that fitness culture is not normally very receptive towards me. That's anyway, awesome. So, so I was on my way to, to camp nerd fitness, um, to, to lift heavy objects. And on the way I stopped at my doctor's office for my annual physical. And, you know, they did the blood work and everything. And I went off and had a great time, um, played rugby, lifted weights, learned, learned basic archery, played a lot of board games and, you know, Um, that kind of thing. And when I came back, I had a voicemail from my doctor's office that said, you, you need to call us right away. And so I called and they said, we, we, we ran your PSA, which is prostate specific antigen. Um, and it's, it's, I forget how high it was, but it was, it was astronomically higher than it should have been at my age. Um, and I even asked the doctor, I said, why did you run a PSA? I'm 41 and I haven't had any symptoms. And the doctor said, Jeff, I don't, I don't know why I ran it. He said, I pray for my patients every morning. And for some reason, mm. I clicked the wrong box on your form. Wow. But he said, but it, it's high. We've got to get you to a urologist. They got me to the urologist. The urologist did a biopsy. Um, And it turned out that I had prostate cancer and I had prostate cancer throughout the prostate. Um, And it was, it was Gleason 9 prostate cancer, which is almost the most aggressive uh, that you can have. It's, it's one that's, there are many different subtypes of prostate cancer. Um, This one is, is potentially fatal. And so uh, there were no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, that they said you have Gleason nine; your prostate has to come out. Mm. Um, and so, so a few months later, um, my prostate was removed. And um, initially, it looked like things went well. It looked like they had gotten everything. Um, pathology couldn't find any evidence of disease outside of the prostate itself. It looked like
1: isn't prostate cancer, one of the cancers that can be, um, completely contained within its organ.
0: It can, it can. And that's where, that's what I was alluding to with the subtypes there. There are these things called Gleason scores and they run one through 10, and the lower ones the the lower the lower Gleason scores, they're not actually capable of exiting the prostate okay um, the The higher ones have the potential to metastasize to to exit the prostate and to metastasize to other areas so so mine was the type that could spread and and some of the initial imaging had indicated that there might be some spread so so after the surgery pathology went through, the doctor took samples of all the adjacent tissue and pathology couldn't find any evidence that, that it had spread to lymph nodes or anything else. Um, so initially it looked great. Um, it looked, I mean, not great. I still didn't have a prostate and all of the, the medical issues that come with that. But, um, but in terms of cancer, it looked like, looked like we'd gotten it. Um, I was, um, and I made it to almost two years. I made it to one year and nine months. Mm-hmm. and I, I have my my I have to get my PSA checked every three months, and I may, I was at my one year and nine month PSA check, and all of a sudden my PSA was rising again. Mm. and And not having a prostate, that shouldn't happen, except that prostate cancer cells that spread outside of the prostate are still prostate cells. So they, oh, really? they, they, yeah. So when they latch onto something and they grow, they produce prostate-specific antigen. So my PSA was going up again, which meant that there were there were some cells that were hanging out that were were growing and, and continuing to produce that that chemical. So we, I went through a course of radiation, um, and that failed to. Well, actually, initially it looked like that had stabilized it. Um, but again, at, a at, at, it, it began to rise again. And so then we got into this awkward phase where the numbers were so small, but not zero. And they were going up that, that we couldn't see, we, we knew that we knew the cancer was there, but we couldn't see where it was.
2: Mm. And
0: so we, we had to, we, we had to go into this phase where literally they let you get sicker, um, until they can, until you're sick enough that they can, can fix it, you know? Oh, wow. And so, so I, I once again had my PSA checked every three months and it went up and up and up and up and up. And finally the doctor said, you you now have a score high enough that, that a, a, um, um, what was called an axumin PET scan, uh, will be able to tell us where it is. And, uh, and so I went in for this, this axumin scan. It's, it's a normal PET scan, except they inject you with this, uh, this radioactive material. Um, and, uh, and it causes the cancer to literally light up. And, uh, So I went in for the PET scan and they were able to see where it was. And so then I had a second course of radiation. Mm. Um, And I'm now um, about nine months out of that course of radiation. Um, Once again, getting my PSA checked uh, every three months. And now for the first time ever, my PSA, every time I get it checked is lower and lower and lower. The the last time I had it checked, it was 0.01, which is the lowest that it's ever been. Um, And and really, really zero is the only thing you can register lower than that. So it looks like the second course of radiation um, has, uh, has worked.
1: Great. So what is it like to wrestle with that severity of um, catastrophic illness, your own mortality, your own, um, your own existence at such a young age?
0: Well, you know, I, I don't know how it compares to, to doing it at any other age, because this is the only age I've done it at. But, mm-hmm. you know, as a hospice chaplain, uh, I saw a number of people die of prostate cancer. And it mm-hmm. is it is a very, very horrible way to go. And I remember telling um, uh, a therapist one time, I said, you know, I, I'm not I'm not in a hurry to die but I'm not afraid to die. I said, I am afraid to die of prostate cancer.
2: Mm. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I mean, the, the idea, and I don't want to go into graphic explanations, but the idea that I would end up like, like even the best cared for of our prostate cancer patients when I was in hospice, um, just, just scared the living daylights out of me. Mm. Um, and, um, but, but even more difficult than the cancer itself, there, there are all these little things that go along with the cancer treatment that they don't really tell you about because, because the cancer is big, the cancer is scary, the cancer is deadly. Um, they don't bother to tell you that the... the that that you will also develop conditions like radiation proctitis or lymphedema along the way mm-hmm. and that even after we're no longer dealing with the cancer you will probably still have to deal with those things forever um and then because prostate cancer is so variable um and and just about everybody knows somebody who had um, a fairly mild form of prostate cancer, something that I never really anticipated was um, people who would look at me with, with all seriousness and would say, well, at least it's just prostate cancer.
2: Mm. <laughs> wow. And
0: I, 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 I would be like, well, in reality I would, would smile and nod and, and say, yeah, I, I guess it could be a lot worse, um, because because what I wanted to do was punch them in the throat and, and that's not right. behavior. <laughs>
1: You know, we have a daughter who is a cancer survivor. She was diagnosed with leukemia at age two and a half. And uh, some of the other parents who were uh, parents of of children with cancer would say things to me like, um, "We feel so lucky that we're just dealing with a solid mass cancer rather than a blood cancer." And I'm just like, "It's just similar, Jeff, to what we were talking about with trauma. It's still cancer. It's still trauma. Right. You know, we don't put that on a scale of you know." of, you know, well, this isn't really cancer and this really is, you know. Uh, but it was interesting, you know, I would say I there's, it, we're still all dealing with the same issue, whether you're dealing with, you know, a Wilms tumor or whether you're dealing with a blood cancer or a bone cancer, it's still cancer.
0: Well, and and that phrase that you just used right there is something I really want to highlight. We're all dealing with cancer and that that's something that goes unacknowledged, you know. During my fight, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be in remission right now, but, but during the time that I actively had cancer in my body, I had a tumor. You know, I had cancer cells in my body, but my wife, my son, my parents, even mm-hmm. my co-workers had cancer in their life. Yes, And, you know, so, so what I I would, I would say to my wife, I would say, I have a tumor, but, but we collectively have cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, and that's, that's something that's, that's not, um, that's not necessarily acknowledged acknowledged. at my hospital. We do have support groups for cancer caregivers. But, but even just that term, it assumes that, that the reason they need support is because they're caregivers to the patient, um, not just because they happen to be living with or, or sharing space with or sharing a life with um, someone who has cancer. We have caregiver support groups, not I have cancer in my life, even if it's not in my body specifically right. Uh, Support groups and programs.
1: Yeah. Well, I am so glad that you are in remission and I just wish you, um, all the, the blessing and, and luck and, uh, and healing that I can, I can muster today. So, um, I have one last question for you and it is, where do you find hope and where have you found hope and healing in your life? What's the source of that for you?
0: Well, you know, I, I am a pastor, so I'm going to say in in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. But but what what I what I mean, but but I, I don't want that to just be a pat answer. What I mean is that um, in in dealing with trauma, whether it was uh, the trauma of abuse or whether it's my own battle with cancer or even on a daily basis, being with people in the hospital in their trauma, and then having to deal with my own reaction to that. um, I personally find a huge amount of, of strength and support um, in the story of Jesus, in the Mm -hmm. story of, in the story of a person who, who pushed on in faith, even though he knew that, that, even though he knew the cross was coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that part of Jesus's story um, takes on a whole new meaning for me these days. Um, and then once I, I, once I enter into that part of the story, um, and, and then I can truly appreciate the fact that um, the cross wasn't the last word. Right. And, and that the cross led to the resurrection and that the resurrection leads to the ascension. And, and then we're into the, the coming again. And, you know, that's, that's, that part is all still to me, theological stuff, but in Brass Tacks, um, you know, I find a lot of hope in that story because it is a story about somebody who pushed on, even though they knew that what was coming was not pleasant, And, and that, but, but that unpleasantness that, that every bit of, of human wisdom and reasoning would have said was the final word on it was not the final word.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: you know, that's, that's what I've found.
1: Um, Well, I love that, that you have found hope in the gospels and, um, and that, you know, you see that part of that part of Jesus's story, because that's absolutely true in the, in the terms that I believe in is that um, despite opposition, despite despite persecution, despite, you know, human human mankind struggles, uh, he persevered. Uh, and in, in my belief, he persevered for me. And uh, I, I find great hope in that also. So thank you so much for sharing your story and uh, having vulnerability uh, that um, helps us to understand our own, our own position in life and where we're at. So thank you so much for that.
0: Thank you. It's been great. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast today. You can follow Jill on social media on Facebook and Instagram, JillRiley.author, and on Twitter, Jill Riley Author. Email Jill at JillRiley.org.